I'm only 20 years old, still in school, and I was told I have cancer. But I was also told it's very treatable and I can expect to live a long life. I wonder, though, how my friends will treat me, or if they'll be afraid of me. Everyone will be thinking the same thing I'm thinking. Am I going to die? I was just told that I have cancer, and I'm only 31 with two small kids. The doctors say it can be more dangerous to have this type of cancer when I'm so young, but that it was caught early. I'm afraid I will not be here long enough to raise my kids, so I'm spending lots of quality time with them. But I'm also really focused on making sure that there's a plan in place for them, in case the worst happens to me. I'm 45 years old, and I've been living with cancer as a chronic disease for six years. I'll never be cured of this cancer, but there is a chance I can live a long time. Off and on, I need different types of treatment to control the cancer, and I occasionally have days when I just don't feel well. Of course, everybody's got to die someday, but for me, <laughs> the idea just doesn't seem so abstract anymore. I just celebrated my 57th birthday, and the nurses at the clinic sang happy birthday to me right before I had my chemotherapy. The cancer came back after three years and spread to other parts of my body. So now I'm being treated for metastatic disease. I don't know how much time I have left, but I do know I'm grateful for every day, and I want to make the most of each and every one. At 62, I'm considered a long-term survivor since I was originally treated for cancer over 30 years ago. Now I have heart damage from my earlier treatments, and I must have surgery. Although I have no signs of cancer, I'm still afraid of this surgery and what they might find. I'm not sure I've come to terms yet with the fact that I might die sooner rather than later. I feel so thankful that I made it to 70. Fifteen years ago, I was successfully treated for cancer, but I was just diagnosed with another entirely different type of cancer and have to undergo more chemotherapy. The doctors say I can't have any more radiation as this new cancer may have happened because of my past treatments. Ah, I'm starting to feel like I need to get my affairs in order. So I don't have to worry about the practical things. I've made a list, and I feel good about doing the things I need to do. I will soon be 84 years old and was just diagnosed with cancer. It is a type of cancer that grows slowly. My life has been good, and I still have some adventures left in me. So I have decided not to have any treatment, feel as well as I can for as long as I can, and let nature take its course. My question is not, am I going to die, but when and how? Welcome to the Cancer Survival Toolbox program entitled Dying Well, the Final Stage of Survivorship. This is just one of a series of Cancer Survival Toolbox programs. There are also programs on communicating, finding information, making decisions, solving problems, negotiating, and ways to stand up for your rights. In addition, there are other special topics programs, like ones on finding ways to pay for care and topics for older persons, as well as programs on different types of cancers. You can listen to or read these programs online at www.canceradvocacy.org toolbox. You can also download the audio files from iTunes.
The Cancer Survival Toolbox comes with a free resource booklet, also available at www.canceradvocacy.org toolbox. Resources and organizations related to each Cancer Survival Toolbox topic are included. Now, let's talk more about this program's topic, the final stage of survivorship. Seasons of Survival, an article by Dr. Fitzhugh Mullen, the co-founder of National Coalition for Cancer Survivorship, describes the acute, extended, and permanent long-term stages of survivorship. These stages cover, one, the time around diagnosis and treatment, two, the immediate months and years after the initial treatment is completed, and three, longer-term survival that can extend into years and decades. But many feel we need to add the experience of dying to these stages of survival, as death can happen during any one of these time frames. Our challenge, then, is to learn how to live fully while we are alive and to continue to live as fully as possible as we are nearing death. Many of us accept the fact we will die, we hope with dignity and grace. Others do everything in their power to not think about it or to fight it every step of the way. No matter how we deal with dying, a diagnosis of cancer seems to stare us right in the face. It quickly puts life into perspective whether we want it to or not. The issue of will we die from the disease is usually one of our first and last questions. Other questions include, when will I die and how? Will I be in pain? Will someone be with me? Can I be at home or will I die in a hospital or nursing home? When will I be ready for hospice? Will my doctors give up on me if I am ready to die? Who refers me to hospice and when? Will I be afraid? What lies beyond? Or our thoughts may be more practical and turn to finances and wills and powers of attorney. Will our loved ones be okay after we die? Are there good and bad ways to grieve? Are there people and resources to help me and my family both during and after my death? Who can help me find these resources? Although death is an inevitable part of life, few of us know just what to do or say, or how to find the support we need when we are nearing the end of our lives and saying our final goodbyes. Also, some of us are better at dealing with death than others. A good example of someone who has spent time confronting the challenges of dying is Amy Harwell, a cancer survivor who was not supposed to be around long enough to write a book. Meanwhile, she's written two books and is still going strong. In her second book, Ready to Live, Prepared to Die, Amy shared a story where a neighbor, who was also dealing with cancer, noted that Amy seemed at peace with her serious diagnosis and asked what was her secret to be able to feel this way. Her secret was simply this, I had worked through my dying to go on with my living. I believe that once we have prepared to die, we are really free to live in whatever time we have left. While Amy is determined to live her life joyfully and in the present moment, she is also realistic about the challenges and difficulties that accompany one's dying. Her writings describe many of the lessons she learned in putting her life in order so she could feel free to savor each and every moment of the rest of her life. In Dying to Know, Straight Talk About Death and Dying, Tani Bhatti, a longtime hospice nurse, writes, Intellectually, you have always known that one day you will die, 
but somehow it comes as a surprise. You just didn't expect it, yet. There is rarely a good time to die. Since living forever is not an option, let's talk about the choices you do have. We hope that you find this Cancer Survival Toolbox program informative, supportive, and maybe even reassuring as you learn more about your choices, resources, and what to expect during this last stage of survival. Perhaps one of the hardest things about dying is deciding when and how to have necessary and frequently difficult conversations. Our dying and death are not ours alone. Family, friends, co-workers, and our healthcare team all share our experience to some extent. Yet many people are unfamiliar with death. Their only framework may be television or the movies, where death is portrayed in unrealistic ways. If you are employed, it will be necessary to tell your employer and co-workers when you can no longer return to work. This may bring about a change in the relationships you previously had with your work friends. You may find they become uncomfortable around you. They may be inexperienced with dying and death, and they didn't know what to do or say, so they stop calling or visiting. At the same time, as your disease progresses, you may find you don't want many visitors, or that you want to be with only a special person or two. Withdrawing from the outside world is a normal part of dying, but it can also be a loss. Some family members may also become uncomfortable around you, and you may have to help them. This can seem like an added and unfair burden, but if you wish to have contact with them, you can find ways to put them at ease. Saying something like the following might help. I may look different, but I'm still the same person, and I want our relationship to stay the same as it's always been, for whatever time I have left. There are important conversations you will need to have with your family and your doctor and healthcare team. These conversations usually revolve around your treatment options and your wishes and desires as the end of your life nears. Some individuals are reluctant to have these conversations because it means dealing with or facing death. Family members and even doctors or your healthcare team may not bring up the subject. Dying and death are often hard to talk about. Some suggestions for such conversations are provided later in this program. You also need to consider your legal affairs, such as making certain that your will is updated and that you have advanced directives, including a living will and health care proxy, that will take effect if you can no longer make decisions about your treatment or if you become comatose. Another essential document is a durable power of attorney, a legal document that lets you appoint someone you trust, often called a health care agent, to make decisions about your care. Examples include five wishes or state-specific forms found at www.caringinfo.org. Perhaps a family member or close friend or lawyer can assist you in getting these advanced directive documents in order. There is more information about these topics in the Cancer Survival Toolbox program entitled Living Beyond Cancer. Advanced directives work best when you and your family talk with each other and with your doctor about what your future holds. It is particularly important to discuss whether or not you want life-sustaining measures, such as a breathing machine, intravenous fluids, or a feeding tube. 
This is a good time for everyone in the family to talk about what they would want for themselves at the end of life, which could make it easier for you to talk about it as well. There are several factors that make these conversations difficult. First, each person's death is unique, so it may not be possible for doctors to tell you how you will die or to give you an exact estimate of the time you have left or when you might reach a point when you can no longer make decisions for yourself. Also, some doctors are reluctant to talk about end-of-life concerns because they are afraid it will take away a person's hope. A second factor is that you and your loved ones might not reach the same conclusions at the same time. In the Topics for Older Persons Cancer Survival Toolbox program, we met Doris, who was ready to enter hospice, but her family wanted her to keep fighting. Doris knew she was dying, but her sons weren't ready to let her go. She found a creative way to help her children understand what she needed and what her wishes were. She used her birthday celebration as the time for a discussion about hospice and asked her children to give their blessing as a way of showing their love for her. Another factor is that the frequency and styles of family communication differ widely. Some families have open communication where most things are discussed with family members and even with close friends. Other families are quite private and there are topics that are never or rarely discussed. In these families, personal privacy is highly valued, and family members know what is acceptable and what communication channels are appropriate. In many families, there are mixed communication styles. Culture also can play a big role. In some cultures, families are expected to tell each other everything. In others, health matters are kept private. Perhaps the way you talked about serious issues in your family are different from how they were discussed in your partner's family. There are also age differences in communication. For example, compare your grandparents saying about airing dirty laundry in public with today's teenagers texting or social networking activities. In our society, talking openly about someone dying is not common. We read about death in newspapers, see reports on television, and watch action movies where people die. Yet, when it comes to talking about our own death or the death of a loved one, we don't know when or how to approach the topic. We fear we will say the wrong things, upset our loved ones, or give a message that death is near. Books and articles urge us to have these difficult conversations early, before they are needed. Few of us do that. As a result, we might get to a point where the conversation can't be delayed any longer, but we are at a loss as how to begin. One thing that has been created to assist people with communicating their wishes regarding treatment at the end of life is a form called POLST. POLST stands for Physician Orders for Life-Sustaining Treatment. POLST is a physician order which is recognized and honored across treatment settings. It is portable, which means that it goes with the patient. It provides direction or orders for a range of medical treatments, such as orders for code status, this means whether or not you want to have cardiopulmonary resuscitation done. It also allows for choices regarding nutrition, hydration, intubation, medical ventilation, and antibiotics. The POLST is for anyone who is seriously ill and is choosing to limit medical interventions. POLST does not replace an advanced directive, but is intended to complement it. 
More information on POLST and advanced directives can be found in the resource booklet that accompanies the toolbox. Sometimes others, a family member, a social worker, nurse, or faith leader can assist us. Let's listen to Betty's story about talking with her mother, whose physical condition was getting worse. My mom had had a serious heart problem, plus her cancer, for a long time. Each time she was hospitalized, I would try to broach the topic of what her wishes might be in the future. She and I have been very close my whole life, and the only topic we couldn't seem to discuss was the thought of losing each other. As her condition got worse, it seemed more and more important that we talk. One of the issues was that my mother was a private person. Like many older African-American women, she was a woman of strength. She didn't believe in being emotional or shedding tears. She never complained and seemed to take things in stride. She'd always been a source of support for me, and it was hard for me to deal with changing our roles. I finally talked to my brother about the need for us to talk to our mother about dying. He was fairly matter-of-fact and said he would be part of the conversation. I felt it might be helpful to use a document called Five Wishes, which covered what my mother would want during her final days and hours and for her funeral. One afternoon when we were all together, my brother brought up the topic in a way that said we needed to get this done. Surprisingly, my mother didn't object. The three of us went through all of the questions. We documented her answers and had two neighbors sign as witnesses. I felt much better, and I think my mother did too. I tried to understand why my brother was able to bring about the discussion when I hadn't been able to. Looking back, I believe it was because he approached it in a straightforward manner, as something that needed to be done. That allowed my mother to remain in control and the conversation never became emotional. Mother died suddenly a few months later. We followed all her wishes. I often think of that conversation as a gift from my brother. Justina, a hospice chaplain, tells us why she thinks communication is so important when we are facing the end of life. My father was diagnosed with late-stage colon cancer when I was 14 years old. At the time, my younger brothers and I really didn't understand how serious it was, especially because he was determined to extend his life as long as possible through experimental treatments. He and my mother were very close, and they talked about decisions that had to be made at each stage of his illness. Maybe because we kids were so busy with our own lives, or maybe because they thought they could protect us from hurt, we didn't really sit down and talk about what might happen if the treatment stopped working or how we felt about it. When he died of complications in the hospital, it came as a really big shock. It took me a long time to get over the anger I felt at not having a chance to say goodbye. We told each other we loved one another all the time, so it wasn't that I missed the chance to do that, but I always wished that we had talked more about our family and what he meant to us and ways that he would always be with us in our hearts. When I work with families now, I encourage them to bring up the subject of death and talk about ways of staying close, even in the face of loss. It's hard to face sadness together, but it's almost always better than facing it alone. The Cancer Survival Toolbox program on communicating has a number of helpful tips. Remember, it's important to use I messages when we express ourselves. A simple request like, 
I have something I've been wanting to talk about, but haven't quite known how to bring it up. Can open up a difficult topic. Checking the message. Repeating what you think the other person said is another important communication skill. When expressing strong feelings of anger, sadness, or guilt that are common reactions to loss, sometimes it can help to sit quietly first and gather your thoughts. Then begin with the statement, I am aware that I am feeling. An example is, I am aware that I am feeling angry at cancer, or I'm aware I am missing all the really fun things we used to do. Every family is unique, and good communication can make the most of your family's strengths. If your family is having trouble talking about loss or the end of life, help is available. Social workers in many healthcare settings, hospitals, cancer clinics, visiting nurse associations, and hospice and palliative care programs are trained to provide just this kind of help. There are also some very helpful guides, such as the Caring Conversations website listed in the resource booklet. We can always find reasons not to do things that make us uncomfortable. The time isn't right. We don't have the necessary documents. We don't want to discourage our loved one or take away their hope. We don't want to give up hope ourselves. The list goes on and on, but eventually, if we wait too long, the time for the conversation can be lost. At this point, it seems important to say a few things about hope at the end of life. No matter what the stage of illness, hope is important. Many people wonder how it is possible for someone to remain hopeful when they are dying. Sometimes we overlook the fact that persons who are dying are also still living, and they may need emotional help to live as fully as possible until they die. Hope is a complex concept, and defining it is not easy. Part of the problem is that there are many kinds of hope, and people define hope differently. Most people, especially those in healthcare, are familiar with the idea of therapeutic hope, hope that is related to therapy and to curing or controlling your disease. But hope is much broader than that. Hope changes as circumstances change. If you find your disease can no longer be controlled, that you are going to die, you may find new hopes for whatever time you have left. You may hope for something general, like living as fully as possible until you die. Or your hopes may be more specific, like living to see a grandchild born, or visiting a favorite spot once more. Or you may hope to be able to spend one more day with a dear friend, or to hold a loved one again. As your condition worsens, you can hope for a pain-free or peaceful death, or, depending on your faith or belief, a life after death, or once again seeing loved ones who have died before you. There is always something to hope for, and you have the right to remain hopeful until death. Some degree of anxiety and depression are common reactions to a cancer diagnosis. No matter what the prognosis is, most people feel anxiety about how long or limited their life might be when they first hear they have cancer. Depression can crop up at any time. Many things, such as counseling, a support group, medicines, or exercise, can help you to cope with anxiety or depression. Darrell's prognosis was uncertain from the time of his diagnosis with advanced lung cancer. Although he and his sister sought a second opinion and he enrolled in a clinical trial, hoping for a remission, 
He couldn't sleep some nights when he felt anxious about the future. I knew from the start I was facing an uphill battle with the type of cancer I had. Even though I was able to sign on to a clinical trial and felt sure the doctors were doing all they could, I felt anxious most of the time. At night, my mind seemed to go over and over the questions no one could really answer about whether I would survive. At the clinic, one of my nurses gave me the Cancer Survival Toolbox and suggested I listen to it. I found the relaxation exercise in the Living Beyond Cancer program to be helpful. It leads you through muscle relaxation exercises, giving you instructions on how to tense and release your muscles so you can get into a relaxed physical state. Then it helps you think about a calm place. I listened to this exercise at night before I went to sleep and use it if I woke up at night or felt nervous during the day. I could use it when I went in for tests or when I was waiting for test results. It really helped. Denise is an oncology nurse who works in a community hospital and sees many people like Daryl or their family members who need relief from anxiety. We get to know our patients and families pretty well because we're a small community hospital. I can often tell when they haven't been sleeping or are worrying about upcoming tests. I let people know that anxiety is normal and that we want to help them with all their symptoms, not just the physical ones. Sometimes talking with family members about the decisions that are creating the anxiety is the best way to relieve it. I encourage people to try various stress-relieving measures such as muscle relaxation exercises because they are simple techniques that can really work. Hypnosis, visualization, yoga, exercise, and prayer are also helpful for many people. Several of us at our clinic are trained to help teach these techniques. If anxiety continues to be a problem, there are mild anti-anxiety medicines that many of our patients find helpful. Cancer causes enough distress, so we want to help prevent suffering whenever we can. I also work closely with our clinical social worker who is trained to help patients and families with the anxiety and depression that often occur with advanced illness. There are some reactions to learning about a life-limiting illness that almost everyone has. These include worries about what we might experience, how our family will cope, and how our finances will be changed. Sometimes these worries, along with the losses caused by the illness, make us feel depressed. Depression can be caused by many things. A cancer diagnosis itself can cause depression. Chemical imbalances that sometimes accompany cancer and cancer treatments can also cause depression. Most people describe themselves as depressed when they feel sad or down, or what some describe as the blues. This feeling is called depressed mood by mental health experts. Depressed mood is usually temporary and is common in people facing stressful situations. Sometimes, however, depression is more serious or lasts longer. When a person feels sad for part of the day every day, has changes in sleep, appetite, and energy, and loses interest in daily routines, he or she may have major depression. This condition requires treatment when it interferes with energy, relationships, or quality of life. Linda is a social worker at a cancer center. Let's listen to her intervention with Sonia, who was struggling with depression. As a social worker, my role is to help patients and families with the emotional and practical problems cancer can create. 
some people with advanced cancer choose palliative care. This means the focus of care is on comfort and managing pain and other symptoms. When my doctor and I agreed not to do experimental surgery and instead focus on palliative care to help me with my breathing, I found myself feeling very depressed. I was worried about my husband and children and how they would cope when I grew weaker and needed more care. And I cried for the first few days after making the decision. I didn't feel like eating and actually thought about storing up my pain pills and taking them all. My husband got really worried and talked to Linda, the social worker at our clinic. We both met with her. It was such a relief to be able to talk about what we feared most. We also learned there were aides who could come in to give my husband and daughters some relief and a caregiver support group they could attend. Linda also arranged for a meeting with the team psychiatrist, who gave me a mild antidepressant. It not only helped improve my mood, but it helped with my appetite and sleep. When our time to live is limited, it's important to be able to use our energy to make the most of the time we have so that we can spend it with the special people in our lives and doing the activities that bring us pleasure. As a team, we work together to provide not only the right medicines to relieve physical discomfort, but the medicines and conversations to relieve emotional distress. It is possible even during the last months of life to live fully, and there are many ways patients and families can be helped to do this. Talking with family and healthcare providers, finding the right support services, and using the right types of medicines are all things that can help. In the resource booklet, you'll notice something called a distress thermometer, which can help you describe to your healthcare team the way you are feeling. If you use it and find you are feeling stressed, you may want to talk to someone such as a social worker. For more information on how to find a social worker, ask your healthcare team or hospice. You can also visit www.helpstartshere.org a website with helpful information for dealing with serious illness, as well as a list of social workers in your area. We make choices every day, from when to get up in the morning to what to wear, what to eat, what book to read, and so on. Yet when it comes to deciding about treatment, the need for treatment, what type of treatment to choose, or when to stop treatment, how we decide can be very different. In the Cancer Survival Toolbox program called Making Decisions, we learn there are three types of decision makers. The first lets others make decisions for him or her. The second makes decisions after looking at options and talking with others. The third makes decisions with as little input from others as possible. Much of this has to do with how much control we want or feel we can have. We also can change our styles of decision-making depending upon our circumstances. One of the most difficult decisions may be whether to continue or stop cancer treatments. Is the treatment no longer controlling my cancer? Would a clinical trial or experimental drugs be worth trying? Is the treatment success rate high enough that it's worth it to me to live with the symptoms I'm likely to face as a result of the treatment? Will I be giving up by asking to stop chemotherapy or radiation? Do I want to be kept alive with the help of technology and machinery? An equally difficult task is deciding who will make the decision to stop. Will it be my doctor, a family member, or me, the person with the disease? 
Let's listen in on a support group where the discussion focuses on stopping aggressive treatment. It's important to note that stopping treatment does not mean there is nothing else to be done. Good palliative care and symptom control are essential at this time. My doctor said the cancer's now in my liver and bones. She can't offer me any treatments that will cure the cancer, but she promises she'll make me as comfortable as possible. I'm 75 and I've had a wonderful life, but my husband is not ready to let me go. He wants me to keep trying anything that might give us some more time. I know how hard it is for him to take care of me and watch me suffer. We can't even talk about my dying without having a fight. So I just want my doctor to decide when enough is enough, and I know that she'll make the best decision for me. When my grandfather died of cancer in the 1950s, uh, everything seemed so sad and yet simple. He went to the hospital, had surgery, was diagnosed with cancer, and stayed there until he died. The doctor could only try and make him comfortable, as there weren't any other options. But he died in so much pain. Now I have the same type of cancer. While my first course of treatment didn't cure the cancer, it kept it under control for many years. And I had no pain. But the cancer's back, and being in pain is my main fear. My doctors say they can keep trying new therapies, but I'm so tired of feeling sick all the time. I want help deciding when to stop all the experimental treatments. But the final decision will be mine. Whoa, whoa, whoa. No one is making any decisions about my life except me. I'm going to keep trying anything and everything till they take me out kicking and screaming. I still have a lot of life to live, and I have three kids who need me around as long as possible. There's always a new treatment down the road, so I just need my doctors to keep things under control long enough to find it. I already stopped radiation. It, it just wasn't working. My big question now is whether or not I want to be hooked up to any machines in the hospital if I can't breathe on my own. Or if I should get antibiotics for an infection if it just prolongs my dying. The quality of my life is very important to me, more so than how long I live. I also know I can change my mind at any time. I'm glad my family has told me that they will support whatever choice I make. You've all discussed very different ways to deal with continuing or stopping treatment. All of you are right because each of your decisions, even if you've decided that someone else will make decisions for you, reflect who you are now. What's important to notice is that what unites all these different decisions is that each of you has control over your situations in one way or another. Here are some other things I've learned. Refusing machines and technology or anything that prolongs your life or your suffering is not an act of neglect, but rather can be an act of love and respect. It is your choice. Accepting technology and medicines or anything that prolongs your life because you want to fight every step of the way is also your choice. Discussing your goals for care and your choices and responsibilities with your family, doctor, and hospice team is best done sooner rather than later. Make sure your wishes are known and have them in writing if possible. Also, keep in mind that you can change and adjust your goals at any time. 
Experiencing fears and doubts about having made the right choice is natural. And having your symptoms treated is your right. Dr. Ira Bayak, author of the book, Dying Well, A Prospect for Growth at the End of Life, describes the difference between death and dying. Death is about a lifeless state, inert, static, and unchanging. But the term dying describes a specific time of living, the months and moments toward the end of one's life. Dr. Bayak uses the term dying well to describe the sense of a living experience where conversations can still be had, where emotional wounds can be mended, and where values can become crystal clear. This includes addressing issues of forgiveness, appreciation, love, and saying goodbye. The experience of dying well may not suit everyone, and there surely are many good reasons for some of us to fight off impending death. No judgments are being made if this is what is right for you. But dying also can be peaceful and dignified and viewed as a normal and natural process. Let's join Lupe, a hospice nurse, as she teaches a session on symptom control when someone is dying so that the person is as comfortable as possible. First, I'd like to thank you all for coming to another session on what to expect in the last months of life. Sometimes, talking about what we're afraid of, taking these things apart and looking at them in a factual way can make us more comfortable and less fearful. In this way, the unknown becomes known to us. Today, we're going to talk about symptoms that either you or your loved one may experience in the future or may have right now. Many symptoms, such as losing your appetite, are normal and part of the dying process. Others may be specific to the type of cancer or other problem that you have, such as difficulty in breathing. My hope is that you will learn about what to expect while dying and what you might be able to do in order to feel more comfortable. Let's start by saying that symptoms are not only physical, those that impact the body, but they can also be emotional or spiritual. Our first task is to identify the symptom. Then we can discuss ways to deal with it. So, who would like to describe a symptom they're having or are concerned about? Or, what are your fears? I'm really afraid of pain. My aunt died of cancer and had a lot of pain, but no one talked about it back then. Also, a neighbor was treated for cancer, and towards the end she said she just wanted it to be over because of the pain. We all felt so helpless around them, and we never knew what to do. We tried distraction, back rubs, chicken soup, and of course pain pills, but they didn't seem to work. So pain, my fear is pain. I am afraid of dying alone. What if no one's there with me? What if I need help and no one's around? Where will I be? In my own home or a hospital? And will my kids have enough time to get there to say goodbye? I have a strong faith and believe there is an afterlife. But who will help me pass over? My fear is being alone. My fear is not being able to breathe. Since I'm on oxygen almost all the time now, I know when I'm anxious, I have more trouble getting air into my lungs. It's really scary to feel that I can't get air 
So my fear is suffocating. I am afraid of being confused, not knowing loved ones, of being alive, yet not knowing what is going on around me. What if I have to make the decision to cut down on pain medicine so that I'm more alert? I don't know what troubles me more, having pain or being confused. So I guess I'll have more than one fear. You've mentioned some of the most common fears people have when they're nearing the end of their lives. Let's look at a few of these fears. The fear of being in pain is really widespread. So let's start with that. Many people, even those who have some type of cancer, have absolutely no pain when they're dying. They take no medicines whatsoever. Pain is not an automatic part of dying from cancer. At the other end of the spectrum, many people who are dying do have pain, yet do not get adequate pain control. There are many reasons for this, such as you don't want to take too much medicine in case your pain gets worse later on and you think you'll need a higher dose. You feel that if your doctor thought you needed more medicine, he or she would order it, so you don't ask for more. You don't want to sleep too much or get confused with the amount of medicine you need for total pain relief. You or your family or even your doctor are afraid you will get addicted. You're afraid that too much pain medicine, especially morphine, will hasten your death. What I want you to take away from this session is this. Something can be done about all pain. There are many different types of pain, and there are many types of pain medicine. Doctors and nurses and those who work in palliative care and hospice know how much medicine is enough and how to combine drugs and other methods to relieve your pain. Often, people don't get referred to hospice until a few weeks, days, or even hours before their death. This can result in needless suffering if treatment goals are not met or if treatment is delayed. This can be avoided. Before we tackle other symptoms, let's talk a little more about hospice. There are many reasons why people don't want to go to hospice. Since the hospice team helps people die, we simply don't want to admit we're dying, or members of our family don't want to let us go. But hospice workers are there not only to make you comfortable, but also to support both you and your family in whatever way is needed. That means helping you with physical comfort and helping you and your loved ones with emotional, social, and spiritual comfort. A referral to hospice usually means there are no more therapies that will work to try and cure your illness. But there are many ways to make you more comfortable and to help control your pain and reduce suffering. Hospice care neither prolongs life nor hastens death. Many of you don't want to be in an unfamiliar place. Yet, most hospice care can be done within your own home or in a comfortable and homey setting where family and friends can be with you at all times. You may also think accepting hospice services means you're giving up or no longer fighting to live. But more often, it means you're still in control, just letting go in your own way and preparing for this final part of your life on your own terms. 
There are many reasons to seek hospice care. Hospice provides a special kind of care for the person who is ill and their family. Hospice specializes in managing symptoms so patients can die more comfortably and with dignity. Many people wish to die at home, if possible. They want to be around their loved ones without limits on when they can visit. They want to see their pets and sit in their gardens. 80% of hospice care is provided in the home of the patient or in a nursing home where the patient lives. Inpatient hospice facilities are sometimes available to assist with caregiving. Hospice can arrange for volunteers to help with errands, cooking, or other tasks, or simply to be there to give family members some quiet rest time. Some hospices have residences where patients can go to get pain or other symptoms under control or to live out their final days. Your doctor might suggest hospice, but when you hear about it, you decide it just isn't right for you right now. It may be you still want aggressive treatment or you already have the help you need. You have the right to make any decision you want to and it's okay to say no. You can always change your mind later if you decide you want hospice care in the future. We already spent some time talking about managing pain. Let's talk now about other symptoms that might worry us. How about breathing? One of you mentioned you were afraid of not being able to breathe. Oh yes, this really scares me. I can't imagine not having my oxygen at all times. When I feel like I can't get enough air into my lungs, I panic and find it even harder to breathe. What if there comes a time when I just can't get enough oxygen? As you know, Oxygen helps you function with less strain on your lungs and heart. You can sleep better and thus take fewer naps. This allows you to be more alert and active and feel more independent. You can get as much enjoyment as possible out of each day, yet you may still have times where you feel anxious. This is where medicine might be helpful, or you might need to combine medicine with some meditation for an enhanced calming effect. In Tani Bhatti's book, Dying to Know, Straight Talk About Death and Dying, she describes the need for oxygen. She writes about the oxygen levels in your body decreasing as you near death and says, when the oxygen in your body gets low enough and the carbon dioxide in your system builds up, it promotes a sense of calm as you slip into a coma. When this happens, all struggles leave you and you breathe easier. You will essentially have gone to sleep and your loved ones will be happy to see easier breathing and no agitation. Increasing the oxygen or using a high-tech oxygen mask will only delay this natural and peaceful process. Another symptom we may need help understanding is confusion and whether or not it is from medicines or from the body shutting down. Also, as death nears, there are changes in body temperature, notably cold hands and feet, as the body directs blood to vital organs. Again, the hospice staff can help us understand what is happening. My appetite is changing. I wonder if I need to force myself to eat and drink when I really don't feel like it. 
My family is so afraid that if I don't eat enough, I will continue to lose weight and die sooner. So they say, eat, eat. You must keep up your strength. I wish they'd stop. This is one of the hardest issues for loved ones, as it's something they feel they can do to help. But foods may not taste the same, and you get full with just a few bites. Or you have dry mouth and trouble swallowing, or feel nauseous. This is not unusual. Your body is telling you it doesn't need so much food now, and it probably can't use it either. As a matter of fact, you may make yourself uncomfortable by eating more, like feeling bloated or even vomiting. When you don't eat much at this time of nearing death, your body goes into a state called ketosis. That is, it's using fat and protein for energy. This change in metabolism is associated with a release of natural endorphins that actually may cause a feeling of mild euphoria or well-being. Your healthcare team can help your family and loved ones understand this process better so they don't feel the need to force you to eat. You may also want to have them read the patient and family education sheets that describe how to manage symptoms from the Hospice and Palliative Nurses Foundation www.hpnf.org. Is there anyone else with other concerns? I wonder about drinking enough fluids. If we can feel better by not eating, should we try to stay hydrated? Or should we have IV fluids so we're more comfortable? When someone with a life-ending illness is no longer able to eat or drink, it usually means the body is beginning to prepare for death. If this is the case, then stopping fluids won't necessarily hasten your death, but will probably make you more comfortable. Too much fluid could put an extra strain on your heart and cause your body to retain fluids and swell, especially your hands and feet or your buttocks where you can get pressure sores. Fluid could even build up in your lungs and make it harder for you to breathe. So you and your caregivers need to understand what is happening to your body not force fluids, and let the natural release of endorphins, again, help you feel more comfortable. You might want to take a look at the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization's tips on artificial nutrition and hydration at the end of life at www.caringinfo.org. While many of us don't want to talk about our death or even think about it, Others are curious as to how it actually happens. What are the signs that death is approaching? Does it always happen the same way, or is it difficult for each of us? Will there be noises that could frighten my loved ones if they are in the room? Is there information to help my family and loved ones know what's happening and that death is near? Dr. William Lamers, a medical consultant with the Hospice Foundation of America, has written extensively about the signs of approaching death and has an easy-to-understand list of these signs on the Foundation's website, www.hospicefoundation.org. He begins the list by noting this is a general picture of the dying process, and there will be differences from person to person. The list describes the most common physical signs of a body's last moments. The most obvious sign is a decrease in activity. Less movement, less speaking, less interest in surroundings, less interest in food and water. 
Body temperature lowers by a degree or more. Blood pressure begins to gradually fall. Circulation to the arms and legs decreases so that the hands and feet begin to feel cool compared to the rest of the body. Breathing changes from a normal rate and rhythm to a new pattern of several rapid breaths, followed by a period of no respiration. This is known as Cheney-Stokes respiration, named after the two doctors who first described it. Skin color changes from normal to a duller, darker, grayish hue. The fingernail beds become bluish rather than the normal pink. Speaking decreases. The person ceases to respond to questions and no longer spontaneously speaks. The person goes into a coma that may last from minutes to days before death occurs. He goes on to say that a person in a coma may still hear what is said even when he or she no longer seems to respond to verbal or even painful stimuli. Those who are nearby should always act as if the person is aware of what is going on and is able to hear and understand. As hearing is the last sense to leave, anyone in the room at this time may want to tell favorite stories, sing or play music, pray or say anything that you don't want left unsaid. If you would like more information about these final moments, contact Caring Connections at 800 658 8898 or www.caringinfo.org or by email at consumers at nhpco.org. You can also order The Dying Process, A Guide for Caregivers from the Hospice Foundation of America at hospicefoundation.org. More information about how to contact these groups can be found in the resource booklet. According to research, about 75% of people see spirituality and or religion as important in their lives. When life is limited or ending, spirituality may become even more important. Spirituality is a term used to define that which gives meaning to our lives. For many people, a religion is an expression of spirituality. For others, spirituality may be expressed through a faith community or a love of nature. These can all be ways to find meaning when the end of life is nearing. Many spiritual questions can arise as life draws to a close, including, Why is this happening to me? and What has been my purpose in life? These questions are common and can lead to meaningful conversations with your family or clergy. For some, spirituality is also closely linked with culture. People from the same cultural groups may practice the same religion or join together in a spiritual community. This can be a great source of strength and support in times of stress or loss. Yet, spirituality is also specific to each person. Even those within the same family may have different spiritual beliefs or expressions. A few of the survivors introduced in other Cancer Survival Toolbox programs illustrate the influence spirituality and culture can have and the differences seen even within families. Alice and her husband and their children are all coping in different ways with Alice's leukemia, which has returned after a three-year remission. Alice's Baptist faith is very strong, and she's found comfort in the prayers and visits of her minister and members of her church. Alice says, I feel fortunate to have had the time I did, and now I am placing my life in God's hands. 
I know I'll be with him soon, and I'll be loved and cared for in his kingdom. Her husband wishes Alice would try more treatments, but understands that her faith is providing her comfort and supports her decision to come home with hospice care so she can spend time with her family and faith community. Her eldest son, however, is questioning his own faith in the face of his mother's illness. He's been meeting with the family's pastor to discuss his concerns. Another survivor, Hein, is from Vietnam and has had liver cancer since age 42. She's married to Tran, and they have a four-year-old son. The family came to the U.S. five years ago. Hein's cancer has not responded well to treatment, and the doctor has spoken with the family about hospice care. Hein quietly cried, and Tron thanked the doctor and said he would consider it. Tron believes a special clinic in California, which uses Buddhist teaching and provides herbal treatments and healing, can help his wife. Hein's doctor is concerned, because Hein is not speaking to anyone but Tron. The doctor would like to understand how Hein is feeling about this, but she will not speak for herself or about hospice or dying. Grief is our natural response to loss. It involves physical, emotional, social, and spiritual reactions. The end of life includes many losses before, during, and after death, both for the person nearing the end of life and their family and others who care about them. Losses for the person who is dying may include the loss of health and strength, of work and other daily routines, of one's social network, of faith or beliefs, and of dreams for the future. When death occurs, saying goodbye is necessary. It is possible for your loved ones to say goodbye and bear the pain with the support of family or friends. There are tasks called the tasks of mourning that are part of the normal grief process. The first task of mourning is accepting the loss, which means to fully understand that the loss has occurred, not that the loss is acceptable. Some days it's just so hard to believe that Dave is gone. I actually pick up the phone to call him at work or sometimes set two places at the table. Day by day, I am getting a little stronger, and I realize he isn't coming back. The second task is working through the pain of grief. There are days when I feel overwhelmed by pain. My body hurts and my arms and legs feel too heavy to lift. On days like that, I go around in a fog. I wonder if my life will ever stop hurting as much as it does right now. Third is adjusting to the new environment without the loved one who has died. After my wife died, I had too much time in my hands. I decided retirement without her wasn't all that great, so I got a part-time job. It helps to have something to fill my days, and it's nice to be around people. The fourth task is emotionally relocating the loved one who has died and moving forward. Joe and I were married for 25 years. We had a wonderful life and wonderful children together. He will always be my husband, but I think it's time I start moving forward on my own. My oldest daughter is expecting a baby next spring. She's asked me to move to her town so I can be a bigger part of my grandchild's life. I think that might be a good idea. A new beginning. The final task, rebuilding your faith or belief system if it was challenged by and during the loss. It was hard watching Bill go through all those treatments and then die anyway. 
For a long time, I was angry at God. I stopped going to church. My faith has always been important to me. And I think it's time I talk to my pastor about my anger. Sadness, anger, guilt, anxiety, loneliness, helplessness, numbness, shock, and even relief in cases such as the prolonged illness of a loved one or the end to a strained relationship are all feelings that are normal and expected following a significant loss. Physical reactions such as sleep problems, poor appetite, fatigue, stomach distress, and anxiety are also often part of normal grief. Children and grandchildren grieve, but differently than adults. Adults grieve in a linear fashion, and their ability to enjoy activities returns gradually over a period of months or years. Children grieve cyclically. They can be sad and upset one moment and off playing the next. Children do need the opportunity to express their grief, and they need to be talked to in a direct and simple way that answers their questions. Children are like adults in that they, too, like to have some sense of control in their lives. Keeping as normal a routine as possible can help your child feel safe. Warning signs that a child may need more help with his or her grief include falling grades, self-destructive behaviors, acting out, or regression to more babyish behaviors like bedwetting or thumb-sucking. Many people ask how long grief lasts. Others ask if it ever ends. The answer is somewhere in between. Death ends a life. It does not end a relationship. However, after a death, that relationship must change. It's important to note that people do not finish grieving or resolve the grief or get over the loss. Rather, they learn to adjust to the loss and to life without their loved one. During the first year, all of the anniversary dates with the loved one missing for the first time must be experienced. These dates include holidays, birthdays, weddings, and other anniversaries, and finally, the anniversary of the date of the death. Those grieving probably will have more difficulty during these periods and should recognize that this is normal. Even years after the death, surges of grief may be experienced during special times such as a graduation, wedding, or the birth of a child. A sign that acute grieving is coming to an end is when a person can think about their loved one without feelings of intense pain. One woman described the pain she felt when her daughter died. She said at first it felt like total body pain. Everything about her hurt. Eventually, she could think about her daughter without being completely consumed by painful feelings. She said now, several years after the loss, she keeps the pain in a special place in her heart. It is always with her. It just doesn't hurt quite so much anymore. Perhaps the most important thing others can do to help friends or loved ones experiencing grief is to recognize their right to express grief in their own ways and encourage them to do so. Each person needs to find his or her path through grief. For some, it may mean talking to trusted family or friends. For others, it may mean taking time alone to sort through feelings and thoughts. In the midst of grief, it's sometimes difficult for those grieving to believe they will ever be happy again. Allowing time and space to grieve is important. There are also many resources that can help. 
the National Association of Social Workers, on its website, has helpful information on grief, as do the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization, the National Cancer Institute, the AARP, and many funeral service providers. These websites are listed in the resource booklet. Some people who lose loved ones benefit from grief counseling. Almost all hospices provide programs and support for grieving persons who have lost loved ones. Support groups are also an option. Teens, who often find it most helpful to talk to their peers, can find support groups either in person or on the Internet at hospicenet.org html slash teenager html. Many counseling and family service agencies offer individual or family grief counseling that can be especially helpful when there are complicating factors, such as financial stress or family conflict after a loss. Your doctor or other members of your health care team or your faith community may be able to recommend a counselor who specializes in helping people deal with grief. Your local hospice is another good resource. Dr. Elizabeth Clark reminds everyone who has experienced the death of someone close to remember several things. Be gentle with yourself. It will take time to recover physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Do not expect too much of yourself or other family members who are grieving. Allow time and healing before making major decisions. Recognize that grief cannot be postponed. Anger, sadness, and all the mixed emotions, thoughts, and reactions of grief are normal and can be expressed in many ways. Allow for variations in your own and others' grief reactions. Each loss and each grieving person is unique. Unlike years ago, when cancer and grief were both kept hidden, there are now many resources to help survivors and their family members with the questions and adjustments that have to be made before, during, and after a cancer diagnosis. The basic skills of the Cancer Survival Toolbox, finding information, communicating, decision-making, problem-solving, and standing up for your rights can be used in every step of the journey. Specific resources on the topics covered in this Dying Well program can be found in the resource booklet. This is the end of the Cancer Survival Toolbox program entitled Dying Well, the Final Stage of Survivorship. You may also want to listen to other Cancer Survival Toolbox programs such as Communicating, Making Decisions, and Standing Up for Your Rights. If you need more information about cancer survivorship issues, feel free to call the National Coalition for Cancer Survivorship toll-free at 1-888-650-9127 or visit the NCCS website at www.canceradvocacy.org. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this Cancer Survival Toolbox program. We wish you well on your journey.